Hey guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to The Legendarium on iTunes. Uh, check us out at thelegendarium.podbean.com and also write us at thelegendariumpodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to The Legendarium. Today, Craig and I discuss Return of the King, Book 5, Chapters 6 through 10 in an episode entitled History of Numenor 101 with Professor Hanks. I don't speak orc. <laughs> Actually, you do. You're the one who speaks Spanish. Spanish is orc. Oh, that's apparently. right. I forgot. So I Hola. 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 Gorbag. Uh, I begin in French uh, in honor of our guest today. Uh, we'll get to him later. Um, so, Ryan, how's it going this week? It's very, it is a very good week. This is an exciting week. Um, it is. Fantasy Con's coming up. I know. And uh, I'm starting to freak out a little bit. Uh, you drew, we, so we're both moderating several podcasts. Panels. I, it, what? Podcasts? Is that what I said? Panels. Something with a P. Uh, now, I drew what I think are some really good ones, but I think you drew some excellent ones. I did. I got the, I got pretty much every major panel that I really wanted including uh, the panel with Sylvester McCoy. Sweet. Which makes me really happy for those who aren't familiar offhand. You should be if you're listening to this. Sylvester McCoy is Radagast from the Hobbit series. But even more so to my heart, he is the seventh incarnation of Doctor Who, of the Doctor from the Doctor, Doctor Who. The Doctor. Come on. I, I thought you were a fan. I, I realized as soon as it left my mouth that any true fan <laughs> would have <laughs> thrown their thrown popcorn me at their speaker. Yes. So I've got Sylvester McCoy. Um... I've also got a couple of things with uh, Kevin J. Anderson. Um, that'll be a, an uh, exciting one. Who's an so author uh, who wrote some great Star Wars novels. Um, yeah, what else? Uh, I've got an acting one with Mark Ryan. And I'm actually being a panelist where you'll get to hear me spout my great nonsense. wisdom. Great wins- wisdom. Great wisdom and nonsense are essentially the same thing, depending on the listener. Um, you'll find that many of the truths we cling to depend on our own point of view. Thank you, Obi-Wan. Yes. But yes, I'm a being a panelist on Great Villains uh, is the panel that they're talking about. How what makes a great villain, what makes them memorable, and uh, what it takes to write a great villain. So I'm excited about that. Ask me which ones I have. Uh, which ones do you have, Craig? Yeah, I don't really remember. <laughs> I need to go look at my list again. Um, I do know that I got the Infinity Blade. If that's still happening, I didn't see it on the list when I last looked, but I assume it's still happening on uh, Saturday the 5th, so that's one that I'm looking forward to. You should be excited. Chair Studios here in Salt Lake, is they've done some really cool stuff. Anyway, is this about FantasyCon, or is this about Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings, I hope. So, we're finishing up Book 5. Now, tell me, are you at all surprised at how fast Book 5 went? No, actually, not really. Um... Because the pages are numbered, or... Well, I read at the same speed, whether whichever book I'm reading, but... (laughs) Uh, No, actually, as I've been going through this book, I have been very impressed. uh, Just everything's happening, and as soon as something's done, they move right on to the next thing, uh, for the most part. So, uh, in terms of moving the plot along, it's just like, hey, guess what? That character's dead. Let's move on. Mm. So, right on. Well, um, let's, let's do this, then. Book five. Now this is the last half of it, chapters six through ten, uh, in an episode entitled "I Don't Know Yet." We haven't come up with the title yet. Um, <laughs> so I've got ten questions, but not just for you. Uh, we have with us in the studio Nick Nicholas 
Nick. Nicky? Nick. Now Nick works. Nick. Nick, Nick Jeter. Nick Jeter. Uh, uh, Nick is a friend of mine. Uh, we work together in France. So we both speak French. So even if you didn't understand my intro, I know he did. I did, in fact. So, in <laughs> fact, Ryan, uh, so in preparation for this particular uh, podcast, Nick read these chapters in French. Oh, wow. How do you feel about that? Um, as long as he has to answer in French, and then uh, <laughs> I have to answer in English. Well, I was a little worried about it because um, all the names, like, they're spelled a little bit differently in French. Like, the pronunciation, like, I have no idea how to translate that. Um, and I wasn't being snotty. I just didn't have an English copy. So... Yeah. Hey, you do what you got to do, right? Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Tolkien might object to that, but whatever. We're going to let it go. Well, don't worry. I read mine in the electronic version, so <laughs> it was all binary, and the spelling there is ridiculous. So now, before we get to the quiz, um, Nick, I brought you on not because I knew that you were a huge Lord of the Rings fan, uh, but because I know that you are intelligent and well-spoken, and uh, that would be valuable to us here. Now, but, because we're not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tell me what your experience is with the Lord of the Rings. Um, well, I will say reading it in French, like just kind of an insight for anybody that might be able to read it in a different language. I read the Lord of the Rings in high school and I guess I wouldn't, I'm not like one of those kids that read it when he was in kindergarten or um, I wa started reading it because I'd read The Hobbit and then I saw the Lord of the Rings movie or Fellowship of the Ring. And decided that, you know what, everyone else is doing this. This looks interesting. I like fantasy swords. And then he said, bring on the crack cocaine. Killing orcs. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was totally it. one of those, like, yeah, this is what's happening. Um, and by everybody, I mean a very specific group of nerds that I hung out with. Um, and so, yeah, I, I read it. It's not something that I've read several times. I've read it once in English, once in French. Um, but reading it in French, I appreciated it more. Mm -hmm. You look at the it language. really it makes you slow down, right? If it's not in your own um, language, it makes you slow down, and and you are forced to consider what you're reading. Yeah, and reading it in reading in English, I was just kind of jumping from sword fight to sword fight. Like I was basically trying to re-experience the movie because I had seen that first. Mm -hmm. um, reading it in French, I'm paying attention to the language. I'm paying attention to the how do these people talk, and you'll notice a different way of a different syntax and a different way of communicating from class to class. So Faramir speaks in this almost like high French uh, or this high language and, and the, the hobbits speak differently. And mm. so, so you get to see the the subtlety of Tolkien's world a little bit and then you just pay attention to his description. And I, I appreciated him a lot more um, reading reading it in French. Um, <laughs> Again, Tolkien rolling in his grave. Yeah, he, he's just got it. <laughs> poor, poor man. Now all I've got in my head is just uh, visions of, of seeing the Lord of the Rings in a French accent, you know, <laughs> King Theoden doing, as the sun rises. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. It's a little, yeah, more, we should it's not, a little more Ponzi. Oh, we got should, it. <laughs> we should not follow that, that road. Um, all right. Well, you guys ready for some uh, some uh, whatever we call this trivia? Trivia. Let's do so this. So for Craig's Lord of the Rings trivia this week, I am going to present the regular ten questions. I may even have a bonus if I can remember what that is. Uh, but we'll see if it's needed. That'll be our tiebreaker. Um, <laughs> so I will read the question aloud, and uh, the 
hand that goes up first into the air without smacking your microphone will be the hand that is chosen first. Because <laughs> I'm looking at Ryan, he's got his hand right underneath the mic, and I just see this going very badly. Yeah, if my hand goes straight up, the mic comes right back into my face. <laughs> so if you hear a big thunk, it's because I forgot to raise my left hand instead of my right. Alright, like. <laughs> so here we go. Three, two, one. Two names for the plant Aragorn uses in his healing. Oh, I saw Nick's hand first. King's foil and Aphalas. Wow, I'm impressed. All right, I had one of those. I was good for one. <laughs> uh, do you know? Do you remember how they translate King's foil in French? Uh, Faille de roi. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Aragorn tends to the three wounded heroes in the Houses of Healing in what order? Nick again. <laughs> uh, Faramir, Eowyn, and Mary. Wow, yes indeed. That's two points for Nick. The messenger of Mordor was said to be of what race? Oh, freak. This is really sad because I actually looked him up on Wikipedia later. Oh man, he's an interesting... Or the, well, the race yeah, is all an I can think story. about is that weird... The guy that they have in the movie... Which was yeah, a bit off. Not helpful. Okay, so buzz on both of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. He is a black Numenorian, as opposed to a true Numenorian in uh, Aragorn. That would have been way more interesting in the movie, too. Um, <laughs> how many men set out from Minas Tirith to assail the Black Gates? Mm. I'm going to be wrong. 3,000. No, uh, you are oh, incorrect, ten, Nick. 10,000. Incorrect also. Ten Split the right down the middle. 7,000 Ouch. Uh, went... Yes. Only 6,000 actually showed up at the gates, or a little less than 6,000, because a few of them kept dropping by the wayside. They got scared. Hmm. Eowyn was going by what pseudonym in order to follow King Theoden? Oh, gosh. It starts with a D. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me whilst I check my iPad here for messages and emails. <laughs> <laughs> the name was Dernhelm. Uh, the Witch King carries what weapon in his face off with Eowyn? Ryan! A, a, a big black mace. Yes, well, I don't know about black. It's just a mace. It was probably black. Um, Everything else he has is black. What is he? He carries <laughs> this one pink item right here. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm get witch you! King, witch King the Fabulous. <laughs> um, Aragorn's banner, speaking of black, is a white tree on a field of black. The banner of Dol Amroth is a white swan-shaped ship on a field of blue. What is the banner of Rohan? Oh, Fetch. Fetch? Where are you <laughs> no. from? Where are you? <laughs> it, it's, a, uh, it, it's a horse, isn't it? Yes. Can you be any more specific than that? Is it a... Golden horse. White horse. It's all you, Ryan. I was, well, I'm going to go... It's not a white horse because the white rider is Gandalf. Right. <laughs> um, it is a white horse on a field of green. Oh. You both suck. <laughs> Today we might say something like the hour is darkest just before the dawn, right? We've all heard this saying. Legolas gives a version of this maxim to Gimli when he says, Oft hope is born. Fill in the blank. In the darkest night. <laughs> <laughs> it rhymes, Oft hope is born when all is forlorn. Oh. oh, yeah, I'm surprised you did that. Uh, the people of Minas Tirith often see a light coming from the White Tower in the days leading up to this battle. It turns out that light was what? <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Denethor left the TV on. <laughs> oh, yes, that is accurate. Yeah, it's Denethor looking at the Pell and Tear. Yes, what is that? Three? Three for Nick? Three for Nick there. Zero for Ryan. 
Uh, question 10. What are the three tokens given by the messenger of Sauron to prove they've captured Frodo? Oh, Ryan. It's the... Save yourself. It is the mithril coat um, from Frodo. It's the stuff from Frodo, the mithril coat. And now I'm blanking on everything else he had. Apparently he ran naked into Mordor with just the mithril coat. Because <laughs> Sam had Sting and uh, Gladriel's vial. Obviously not the ring. Hey, I'll drop this. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, yes, the mithril coat, Sam's sword, which and he then the by Frodo, and the elf cloak. Elven cloak. That's right. I'll give you a half point. I accept your half point. One and a half <laughs> point so far. One and a half? I think so. I think it was just, what did, uh, whatever. I'll give you one and a half. That's, That's fine. right. I'm Nick, taking a point even Nick if I haven't got it. <laughs> um, all right. So here's a bonus just in case either of you want to get it. This is hardly a tiebreaker. Um, da, 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 da. There it is. Okay. So uh, Aragorn says that uh, Telcontar will be the name of his house uh, if, if he ever establishes it. What does that mean? Uh, Strider. Yes. Wow. It means Strider in, <laughs> in High Elven. Yes. Not that I speak High Elven or Low Elven. Quenya or Sindarin. No. No, not so much. <laughs> Again, shocked. Uh, but good job. What's that? Four for Nick? Either a half or one and a half for Ryan. We're not let, sure. We'll just we'll just go ahead and let that one go by the wayside. <laughs> oh no, you gave us the mace. I think so. that's right. We there had a discussion. One and a half for the mace and the mithril coat. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so yeah, good job, both of you. I think. Uh, so let's go on. Maybe uh, get into the meat of this story. Um, now, Ryan, any first impressions? Things you're dying to talk about? Well. Before we dive ever so deeply, I would just like to take a moment to say that these chapters are some of the best war chapters in a book that I've read. Oh, yeah. Because many times when you read a book, a war book, you spend a lot of times, and we've we've hit on this multiple times, um, where they, they give you the, the blow-by-blow of a few moments here and a few moments here, and you're kind of left with without a, a general feeling of the entire battle it's mm-hmm. not always the best not, authors aren't always great at giving you the entire battles feeling in this case even though you do focus in on a few select moments at any point at every given moment that you're dealing with that you're also aware of you can zoom out you can zoom out and be yeah. aware of everything else that's going on everyone else that's battling around and it it's very uh enjoyable to to be immersed in the war in that battle rather than be zeroed in on just the one moment. You know, for this, it works great. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I got the sense that it was um, very organic. Like, Tolkien has created a real world. It feels real. And even though these chapters, I mean, like you were talking about earlier, Craig, the just succession of names and houses and kingdoms that he, that he mentions, all of the, I mean, this geopolitics of Southern Middle Earth. Um, this is a real world. You, you get the sense that Tolkien really is seeing it from every perspective. He's seeing everything that's going on. Um, and I lose that when I watch the movie. And the sense after I read it the last time was that the third movie especially wasn't able to capture the depth of these battle scenes. Well, yeah, I think part of the problem with the third movie is exactly right. What you say, that he, they don't get the depth. They get right. the breadth. You know, yeah. you can see that, yeah, there's, what, 100,000 orcs yeah, camped gets... in front of Minas Tirith, and that's really cool visually, yeah. but then they struggle a little bit more with zooming in, like, right. I don't know, the Eowyn and Theoden 
uh, episode with the Witch King was pretty good. I don't um, know. That was but, great. But get, some other things they can't, they, they have a harder time zooming in on. Yeah, you get the set piece. So you get, he sets up the pieces and you get to see the battle and it's cool and worth bazillions of dollars. <laughs> but where's the prince? I don't know. I say Prince Imrahil. Um, like his whole role is kind of lost. And then all these other kingdoms, this interaction of kingdoms. And as far as, you know, watching the movie, there's only Gondor and Sauron. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. No, I think you're, I think you're right on that. Uh, that's one thing that, even before I, I had gone through and read this, um, I had always felt like the Return of the King. They had like these fantastic battle sequences, and it was very intense. And you had, you know, you had Gondor versus or, or the race of men, which is essentially Gondor and Rohan in the movie. That's all mm-hmm. that it's comprised of. Um, versus Mordor, which is versus, the orcs. Yeah, um, you had all that. But then I always felt like they just kind of said, "Oh, we're." Peter, we're running even longer than we're usually running. That does something. Uh, we need to wrap this up quickly. Why don't we just have, you know, the dead army come through and take care of everything? Because I was like, yeah. I just feel like they rolled up the carpet a little too soon in, in the films with this. Um, whereas in the book here, you know, are there, is it a very long, drawn-out process? No. they The way he writes it, it's not necessarily long and drawn-out. Um, but it is very specific and individualized, and you know how each piece how you know how the darkness fell rather than just some mystic force that came through right so yeah speaking of um speaking of which what did you oh the dead army yeah that's what brought it to mind um i really enjoyed uh the the episode with the ships coming up the river now in the movie this is what brought it to mind in the movie that the dead army you know jumps off the ship and they like you say they roll up the carpet and let's go home yep um but in this one, uh, it's it's not that way. Anyway, what brought it to mind, or the reason I want to talk about it, is I love uh, when the ships are coming up the river and they're uh, they're seen from up on the tower. The riders see them from you know down on the battlefield, and everybody freaks out like, oh, this is it. You know, we were already struggling. It was iffy if we were going to be able to pull this one out, but now we're screwed. Mm-hmm. Right here, these ships with the black sails, the corsairs are here, um, and. Uh, this episode is great because of what you and I have talked about a lot, Ryan, which is um, the like Tolkien's invisible hand of God, right? There's the very visible hand of the forces of evil working on Middle Earth, trying to you know, get their way. But while he does imply that there is a higher force working for the good side, he never, you know, that that force never appears. Mm-hmm. Except in the form of Gandalf, I suppose, and Gollum. But we're not talking about him yet. Well, we're. But even then, spoilers, is it, guys. Spoilers. <laughs> but even then, it's not an explicit like, "Hey, here's right. here's God incarnate, directing the forces of good." Right. Right. It's all kind of like the man behind the the uh, the curtain. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Horrible analogy for God. Um, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz is God. Interesting. Anyway, um, gave me a brain. But we, <laughs> but we talk about um, we talk about this idea of the invisible hand, and this is where it uh, really comes into play in this section. Is that the ships coming up? So did you notice the wind? Yeah, and I the um, wind was a, a recurring theme throughout this these chapters. You know, when the wind changed, so did the mm-hmm. battle type thing. It was right. something else was coming, or something else was. It was a, a 
precursor to any uh, major event. So. so you can imagine Aragorn gets on these boats with, uh, you know, now he's got all these free people from the southern parts of Gondor and they're rowing like crazy, but they're going against the current. Again, maps, right? If you pay attention to maps, you understand the river is flowing southward toward the ocean and they're trying to go north to get to Minas Tirith. Uh, so they're going against the current, it's going very slow, and you can just imagine Aragorn praying to whatever gods he prays to, like, we need some help. And help comes, and it's wind. And they unfurl their black sails, and they're able to get to Minas Tirith in time. Mm-hmm. And that same wind is what uh, shows up at the at the battle before Aragorn even arrives, and the wind and the rain kind of help to uh, wash away the... Uh, or at least give the hope that they can wash away this evil that's on their doorstep. Oh, symbolism. Symbolism. That doesn't exist, right? <laughs> I don't know why we're whispering now. Anyway, uh, <laughs> were you going to say something, Nick? I saw you open your mouth to say something. Um, I, I was going yeah, to... I had not thought about that, and I did not notice the current. I was going to ask, um, and I don't want to get off these five chapters or sidetrack y'all like crazy but do you see yeah we hate sidetracks here <laughs> hate them hate them well do you see that like does the wind show up in other parts of the book or i mean obviously like the hand of god like you said it's not always explicit or the hand of whoever tolkien sees as the gods um which i'm sure you know the names of um, <laughs> he might. I, I admit to nothing the, i think it's the valar yeah the yes. valar um but do you see that even among, with Frodo and Sam, does wind ever help them? Like, not, not that I... Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I don't know that it ever plays a, a helpful role like it does here. Um, it's more of a symbolic role where, you know, the air freshens as the wind picks up. You know, maybe something like the Battle of Helm's Deep. I'm, I'm struggling to remember an exact instance, but I, I think that it is there. I can, I can remember the language of, you know, the air freshening as the tide turns. Right, yeah, I can't think of any other moments of of wind being a specific one, or um, I think there's been there have been quite a few moments where you've had a single occurrence that seems a little convenient mm-hmm. to allow either the, you know the hobbits to escape or something, or it's you know the the natural tendencies of a certain people of the orcs or whatever allow them to escape. Right. You know, there's moments like that that I see, but I don't really see a lot of even slightly indirect intervention other than that specific moment of the wind blowing the right, the right. ships right. up the shore. Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm going to save this. I have a really good question. I just got I'm excited. really excited. I just got really excited, but I'm going to save it. Oh, you're going to save it? Yeah, for later. Oh, okay. When we talk about the last council. Oh, okay. Sounds good. <laughs> so I'll bring up you one of my assume points. we're going to get there. Well, maybe not. Um, no, it's not the last council. It's when Denethor is talking to Gandalf. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Speaking of Denethor, um, definitely, like I said, I think in the last podcast, this is one of my favorite characters uh, to read about. He wouldn't be the guy that I'd want to, like, you know, have dinner with. But, um, but he's really cool as a character. Mm-hmm. And... He definitely gets more depth here, as we've already discussed previously. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I I hate doing this too much, but I'm going to do it right now. And that's, again, bringing up the film versus the book. Now, in the movie, Denethor, it's very clear that he's simply super prideful. And he's, uh, you know, he's been in his position too long, and he's uh, he's been through too much to just give up his his uh, stewardship 
to some ragtag ranger from the north or whatever he calls him. Mm-hmm. Um, they, he says the rule of Gondor is mine and no others. And anyway, but in the book we get a better reason uh, of why he says that. He says, um, he, well, part of the reason Denethor is resistant to Aragorn is that Aragorn is of the house of Isildur. And Denethor is a steward of the house of Anarion. Now, Isildur and Anarion were brothers. They were the sons of Elendil, whose sword Aragorn is carrying, right? Mm-hmm. But they were they were different branches. Isildur ruled in the north. Yeah, because I'm going to call two. you on that if you're wrong. Oh, dang it. <laughs> anyway, well, yeah, I think Isildur ruled in the north. Anarion ruled in the south. So it was it was his throne and the throne of his descendants that eventually the stewards had to uh, watch over this Anarion character. Mm-hmm. And it was Isildur's line that was kept unbroken and eventually made it down to Aragorn. And now Aragorn is showing up and saying, hey, by the way, since I'm alive, I'm not just the king of the north. <laughs> I'm the king of the south. Well, I got a question about that. Why... Why is Aragorn by rights, other than the fact that he has the sword? So it's, um, um, it, I guess it's, um, he is the heir of Elendil, not just the heir of Isildur, right? Right. And so since the uh, line of Anarion was broken, you have to go to the next closest living relative of Elendil. And so you go down a different branch, but it is Aragorn, because the other line was broken. And what do you mean broken? Uh, no more kids. Somebody died in battle. Okay. So, uh, they, yeah, they lost their kingship. So, ever, so whoever Denethor descended from, like, he's a part of that family, but he... He's, he's not part of that family. Okay. His, his family was, uh, his descendants were the stewards. Of that, that right. right. So, Gondor always had stewards. Even when they had kings, there was a steward that could... Uh, you know, take over the governance of, of the country or of Minas Tirith specifically when the king was off to war or doing whatever kings do, right? And so there were always these stewards, and now when the king's line was broken, the stewards maintained that tradition of, well, the king is gone, I'm not the king, uh, I'm going to take over the rule of Gondor as steward still in the hopes and it, importantly the tradition was it's in the hopes that there is still an heir of Elendil out there mm-hmm. they knew that Anarion's line was broken but they're hoping that there's an heir of Elendil but anyway so how many years what is it 2,000 years or something 3,000 these are very patient people yeah. you think well, at a certain point in time they would have just been like hey um you know what? We're just going to take this, change it from steward to king, and be good. <laughs> if the other guy comes back, we can talk about it then. But for now, we're just going to go with king and, and let that be. So he, he may not have been of the house of Elendil, but he was one of the Numenorians. He, you know, his family is descended from this Numenorian race, so he is still you know, uh, kind of a big shot, right? He's gifted with, at this point, maybe only slightly longer life more wisdom more farsightedness ryan's laughing at me no i'm not laughing at you i'm i'm laughing at a very stupid joke that i made in my head let's hear it no it well gosh (laughs) i apologize in advance for what you're about to to experience (laughs) yeah me too um well it's just the repeated you're like the numenorians the numenorians and i just got stuck on the seinfeld newman And so I just had a moment of like someone being like Numenorians. Exactly. That is exactly what went through my head. Numenorians. I I apologize for the last minute 
you can have that back in your life. And I apologize for... I, I went way longer than I thought I would on the history of the Houses of Elendio. <laughs> <laughs> this section brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Right? <laughs> um, I have more history, though, of of the Numenorians. So the black Numenorians, um, are you interested in knowing where these people came from? Because I am. I, I am interested. Yeah. Was, was one of them on Noah's Ark or something? Welcome to <laughs> Numenorian history with <laughs> Professor Craig Hanks. Today we're going to cover black Numenorians. Where did they come from? Why are they here? And where are they going? So the Numenorians <laughs> were, the, were the ancestors of Aragorn and his kin, uh, they lived on an island nation out in the middle of the sea, like halfway to oh. the Blessed Realm. Okay, yeah, and it sunk. This is the this is the Atlantis story of Middle Earth, right? Yes, uh-huh. that island sunk, but before it did, the Numenorians became really, really rich and powerful, and they would sail to Middle Earth, and they would show up, um, and they they looked like gods because they'd been so gifted with wisdom and intelligence. Their technology was way superior to anything that the Middle Earthers at that point had seen, and so they're <coughs> excuse me. So they're almost worshipped as gods. Um, and uh, anyway, one day Sauron in Middle Earth declares himself king of all Middle Earth, king of men mm-hmm. in Middle Earth. Well, the Numenorians don't take very kindly to this. They say, "Listen, you know we're the most powerful race on Earth right now." if you don't count the gods over in the Blessed Realm, I suppose. So they don't take very kindly to this. They go over and they actually capture Sauron without any battles being fought because they were so powerful he knew he couldn't beat them. Oh. So he gives up and they take him as a uh, as a hostage back to Numenor. And there he works over the next uh, few years to corrupt the Numenorians. And... Um, Anyway, so he his body ends up dying there, and he flees back to Middle-earth when that island is sunk. But while he was in Middle-earth, he did corrupt many of the Numenorians who came, and they worshipped him, and they uh, they loved him. They So they stayed in Middle-earth, and when he redeclared his power, they came back and said, All right, finally, you're back. So we're all yours. What do you want us to do? So this high race of men, just like Aragorn's family... They, you know, they were descended from this very, uh, very wealthy, very powerful, uh, very intelligent group of, uh, of men, and now they're in the service of Sauron. Quail in fear. It's pretty cool. I didn't yeah. know. I did not know Sauron actually physically died at any point. Um, yeah. So I mean, he didn't. His body was destroyed, uh, and his spirit fled back to Middle Earth. I was always, um, I've always wondered what he what he is. So he is a Maya. <laughs> I assume that means spirit. Uh, yes, he's like a, whatever, so he's a whatever. servant of the gods, right? Ryan, do you remember? The, you were ask, you were asking me to go into depth about the. I don't not maybe not depth, but do you remember any of this stuff? Uh, let's see. If you don't, that's fine. I'll do it. I know. Well, <laughs> I'm just imagining whatever Voldemort was in his little like. Koopa stage four of, <laughs> of Harry Potter. <laughs> I I cannot speak too much of this, but if I am correct in my understanding, the Maya are they're a subgroup that serves the the Valar. The Valar. Mm-hmm. Um, other similar Maya would be Gandalf and um, Galadriel. No, no. 
See, I'm wrong. I'm, so I'm teaching Ga- false Tolkien doctrine here. <laughs> so like Gandalf, the Balrog, Sauron, the mother of Shelob, uh, these are all Maiar. And yes. so they are, yeah, they're the, the, um, the servants of the gods. And they so. are special... And I mean, you just like, yeah. <laughs> so he essentially, what, Sauron was able previously to take uh, any form that he wished. Uh, he was a shapeshifter. That was kind of one of his things. And then uh, he chose a giant eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> so when, uh, when he actually created the rings, he was able to appear. Um, yeah, he was able to appear fair and wise and right. good looking to the elves and and other men and and trick them because of that because he could look like one of them uh but then when his when that body was destroyed in the sinking of uh, Numenor he was no longer able to do that and he was stuck in his loathsome form which is never fully described so it's interesting he now he rules purely through force, fear right and force yeah anyway uh let's go on with something else <laughs> Got, I've got I've got way more on Denethor, by the way. That'll be that'll be forthcoming. Uh, one of the points that I pulled out that I wanted to talk about, um, we'll actually take a step back in a, in a little bit with one of my other ones. But uh, when we talked about Denethor looking into the Palantir, mm, yes, and I thought it was just an interesting moment to look at the response of someone uh, of the two different people who look into the Palantir, other than Gandalf and and Mary, whatever. Like, if you look at mm-hmm. each individual person that has looked in one of them. And what occurred to them. Mm-hmm. The only one who successfully looks into one and does something that they intended to do, Aaron was not affected by it, is Aragorn. Who looks into it and says, And yo, just barely. Yo, Sauron. Calls him out. Check it. I'm coming. <laughs> I'm coming for you. You hit the bike racks. <laughs> <laughs> Three o'clock after school. We're, I'll be there. Um, but Denethor looks in there and his reasoning for looking in there, if I remember, I mean... I, he has his as his duty as steward. He's trying to figure out what's going to happen and what's going on. And when he does it, he realize it's just immediately all hope is lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty much anyone who has you uh, looked into it, other than Aragorn and Pippin, has pretty much said, "Yeah, that's it. We're done. I've right. seen. I have seen what the enemy has to offer, and it, we have and no we're hope." We're screwed. Yeah. And I thought it was just interesting that the different. Uh, responses to the people who decide to go look to evil for answers yeah so um i uh the the palantir uh is a wonderful device that makes this not medieval warfare it makes it modern warfare not call of duty style which is what that reminded me of when i said it uh but no this is so tolkien is writing as a veteran of world war one and as a spectator of world war two uh, he's deeply involved with that one as well, having at least one son off to war. Uh, anyway, so he, in order to uh, portray what a, what warfare was like for him, he needed some way to uh, to have communication travel as quickly in Middle Earth as he saw it travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, you know, one of the interesting things that he plays with here is, like you say, the despair of these characters. Um, I actually had a. Uh, Sherlock Holmes moment. Uh, I know 
Ryan, you love Sherlock. Right? I do. The new the new BBC version with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, Nick, have you watched ma- ma- it? Major fan. Oh yeah, it's awesome. It's I'm a huge. I've just become a pretty much a convert to BBC television. It's just <laughs> it all seems to be good. If you start whipping out a Madonna accent, I'm gonna punch you. Why would I whip out a Madonna accent? Like, well, you remember she's American, but then she goes to England and suddenly she has this accent after being there for like a week. Oh, I see what you're going for. If you want, I could do any sort of accent you want. I really, based you can't on punch that, me based there. on that, I, uh, I really don't think so. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, I had just watched a day or two ago before I read this, the um, Scandal in Belgravia mm-hmm. with um, uh, Irene Adler. Great That's episode. Yeah. The woman. The woman. Uh, oh, man, she is sexy. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Anyway, so I was watching that episode, and there's uh, the plot. In the end, you realize it's revolved around there's a, a terrorist plot to blow up a 747 over the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And Sherlock inadvertently solves the code, right? Or he deciphers this line of an email. And mm-hmm. um, anyway, so we find out that the good guys. The British and the Americans, they knew what was going to happen. And now they're going to let it happen, not in the way that, you know, the terrorists expected, but they're going to let it happen so that the terrorists don't know that they broke their code. Um, and so they, they let out a very limited amount of information, you know, to the terrorists so that they don't understand the depth of their knowledge and, mm-hmm. and their understanding. So anyway, that reminded me of this situation here because Denethor thinks, all right, I've got this Palantir. I am the Lord of Gondor. It is my right to look into this and to find out what's going on. And so that's what he does, not realizing that uh, he hasn't cracked any code at all. Sauron knows exactly what he's up to. He knows exactly the extent to which Denethor can control this Palantir. And so he... While he cannot lie to Denethor through it, he can control which information he is allowed to get. Mm-hmm. And so with an incomplete set of info, Denethor has no choice but to despair. So he sees, he, for you know months now, he's been watching the armies amass in Mordor, coming from the south and the east. Uh, and he's seeing this gigantic army, and he knows there's just no way that we can do this. Then Gandalf shows up and says, oh, by the way, we found the ruling ring and we sent it with this little hobbit into Mordor. And Denethor's like, you freaking idiot. You should have brought it to me. And then that night uh, when Faramir is injured, uh, he's brought back into the city. Denethor goes and looks into the Palantir one more time. And what does he see? He sees Frodo in Cirith presumably. Mm-hmm. He sees Frodo captured by the enemy. That's when Denethor comes down and says, all hope is lost. There is no way that we can win this because Sauron is telling Denethor, I got the Hobbit. Well, my question is, Sauron obviously knows that Frodo is there at this point. He's started to figure out what the what their little mission is. Um, is it Sauron showing Denethor this image saying, hey, I have him here? Like, is this the same moment that Frodo is in that tower? Hmm. Yeah. So, so why didn't... Why doesn't Sauron sin more? So he has no idea why Frodo is there. All that he knows is that there's some spy in Mordor. Yeah, he thinks that Frodo's a spy. Yeah, so he sniffs out. There must be some plot, you know, but he has no idea what it is. He still hasn't figured out that the ring is so close. Right. But, But the good guys all know that the ring is that close. 
and all they know. And, you know, the same thing, kind of, we can see the same thing when uh, the company shows up at the Black Gates. Right. And they know that Frodo is captured and, well, shoot. Let's just so go. much for that idea. Let's, Let's all die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Um, I, I love this concept uh, that's that's brought forward. And, and Tolkien does it through information. He talks about despair a lot, especially through Denethor. But... Um, well, through Theoden as well, because they are kind of parallel characters who go down different forks of the same path. Uh, Theoden works himself out of despair, um, and and Denethor succumbs to it. But to Tolkien's Catholic mind, uh, I think it's really important to remember that uh, the despair is a sin. Uh, and, and so he's writing this, and he's spending so much time on it because this is really important to him as a Christian the idea of despair is anathema to him. Uh, if you have faith, if you uh, believe that you know that God is on your side, then you have absolutely no excuse for utter despair. You can you know you can be depressed. You can wish that things were going differently, but nobody knows the future. Nobody knows what is really going to happen. And so, if you really, in Tolkien's view, again, if you really have faith in God, then you are honor-bound to believe that the best will happen. And that he will, in the end, you know, as they say, in this life or the next, he will make things right. And so, you know, it's far be it from me to judge anybody for suicide, but it does make it easier for somebody of that Catholic tradition, knowing or believing what they do about despair, to say suicide is the ultimate sin. Right. right, because it's the ultimate lack of faith in God. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway, uh, so this is Wait, something which... that he felt really strongly about, and and I and I feel it when he's writing Denethor, because Denethor comes through the page so strongly in his in his despair. That's really interesting because um, you see Denethor trying to commit suicide, mm-hmm. and Gandalf reminds him. Not just this is wrong, but this is the way the old kings used to do it. This is not, this is not truth as you understand it. This is not rightness as you understand it. You're you're reverting because you are so um, disturbed by what by what he's seen in the Palantir. Yeah. So those those old kings he was talking about, um, Aragorn's race, the Numenorians, they were blessed with the ability not only to have long life. They lived like two hundred, three hundred years. But they were also given the gift to be able to die when they wanted to. Oh, so like, this isn't. Oh, so it's it's not just some kind of. I'm imagining pagan rites. Well, no. <laughs> so yeah, I'm getting there. So they were given this gift um, as a reward for their courage in the first age of the world. Anyway, um, when Sauron came over and he corrupted the Numenorians, they turned away from the the right path and they started worshiping false gods. And because of that, these gifts that they were given were taken away from them. They were no longer able to, to just say, all right, it's time for me to leave this earth and, and die of their own free will. And so in mockery of that, they would commit suicide as okay. a way to, you know, take away their own life like the, like the old, truer kings would do. So this is Denethor walking in that path. Exactly. Like I, I mean, he does see, I don't think he sees himself as royal, but he sees himself, he's definitely a part of... Read that tradition. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question about Denethor. I'm really excited about it. 
<laughs> why? We've been waiting on pins and needles. Yeah, I, I'm. This is why I'm in this room. Um, he calls Gandalf Mithrandir. Yes. I thought Mithrandir, and the, and the question will be less cool if if I thought wrong. Um, <laughs> I thought Mithrandir was the Elven name for Gandalf. Yes. So why is Denethor call, using that name? You want it? Do you no. Know? <laughs> <laughs> I, because he has multiple names, and it just happened to be another one that he wanted to <laughs> Well, and he there. doesn't always call him Mithrandir. It's it, maybe once or twice um, in their little interrogation right before he kills himself. Um, and it's in a mocking tone, just kind of like, yeah, Mithrandir, you come with your... You always show up with bad news. Gandalfness. Right. Um, um, so the the answer is... Uh, maybe not as interesting as what you're looking for. It's just that the Gondorians, um, because of their tradition through the Numenorians, are very tied up in Elven culture. Well, no, that 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 is that's what I wanted to know. That is the yeah. interesting, the international relations of Middle Earth. Yeah, that's what I look at. Like, why are they Elven at all? So yeah, the uh, I mean, obviously, Aragorn. They're close enough that Aragorn's being raised by them for some reason. Mm-hmm. So the the to go even further back, like I said, the Numenorians were given these gifts as a reward for their deeds in the first age. And what they did was they allied themselves with the elves in the war against Sauron's boss, right, Morgoth. And so they uh, and they they did a lot of really great things. And so uh, that was what they were rewarded for. So they were very tied up with the elves even through the second age when they were in Numenor. And so that tradition has kind of carried through. So I think Mithrandir is, yeah, one of the, I think it's one of the few words that remains like uncorrupted. They call him Mithrandir, but they, they have a lot of other elvish words and influences that are, you know, kind of lost through the ages and the the words become a little bit different and yeah. stuff. Now that I'm thinking about it, that captain of the guard, maybe. Baragon? Yeah, Baragon calls him Mithrandir as well. Mm-hmm. And his son calls him Mithrandir. Right. So it wasn't that That's why they call, odd. that's why yeah. they call Pippin a Ferianath instead of a hobbit. Instead of a hobbit. Because, yeah, yeah that's just their word for it. That's pretty yeah. cool. What else you got, Ryan? Well, nothing that deep into the history of Middle Earth. Um, <laughs> this is I, we really need to label this episode "Craig Yaks" for forty minutes about <laughs> about the history of Middle Earth. Oh, I think this is definitely going to have some sort of title involving Professor Hanks teaches. <laughs> I thought you were going to say some title involving the word "yak." <laughs> can I, can yeah. I have another question then? Go for it, because th- this one's not so much history. Um, I got to remember to speak into the microphone. Um, <laughs> it's only radio. <laughs> the. Uh, I am curious. So, Eowyn and Mary kill. Is this the Witch King of England? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, I've always understood Eowyn as being. I mean, this is one of those destiny hand of God moments in a way. Um, the the Witch King mocks her and says, "Don't you know that only a man can kill me, or a man no cannot? Man, no, yeah, man, no, no man, man can kill, kill me." me yeah. and, I am no man. Just <laughs> you look upon a woman. Yeah. And, but I, I have, a, I have a couple questions there in the book and I was skimming. It seems to me that he's saying Eowyn is facing down the lizard thing. He's riding the dragon, <laughs> the um, uh, pterodactyl, his, uh, his Pokemon. <laughs> um, and he's, and he's like, or he says, he seems to be saying no man can kill my Pikachu. 
think it was Charizard, actually. Okay, no, there you go. And, uh, and, and then she chops its head off, and, and, and the Witch King's astonished. And, and I don't remember, and I'm glad you're flipping to that page. Um, I don't remember if that's when she says, I'm a woman. And so the question is, was the prophecy that only a woman can kill the lizard, the dragon? Or is it only a woman can, or a man cannot kill? This is actually one of my one of my that, points. I said that wrong. It's not only a woman can kill; it's that no man can kill. No man can kill. This yeah. is actually one of my points, and it's another question because it, I was con- I'm slightly confused at this point too because of something, and I was trying to find the paragraph that confused me. Um, he says, "You know, no man can kill me," and I believe that it's referring specifically to him, um, and. You know, hey, convenient. We brought along one woman, and she happened to be the one who stepped in place. Um, one whole woman. <laughs> but actually, it's the moment before she stabs him in the face that makes that cause me confusion. Mary stabs exactly. Him that was my other question. Is so my question here? I wrote down um, uh, who actually killed him because Mary stabs him and. It you know it causes problems with his leg. He's like, oh, I've been stabbed. I've been stabbed, and, <laughs> and then she you know stabs and him in rape the face. Blood is gushing <laughs> out. But that was my my biggest question was okay. The prophecy says no man can kill me, but a hobbit technically wouldn't classify in the same class as a man. So was it Mary who killed him with his elven blade, mm. or was it his? Was Aeon? not an a, not an elven blade though. Oh, it wasn't. No, um, his the reason that he's able to to strike the blow that he does is because his sword it comes from that northern kingdom. You remember he got it from the Barrow Downs way back in like oh, wow. well, like February whenever we were reading that one. <laughs> wow. Long time ago. I didn't realize he kept the same sword. So yeah, that's the same sword and so when we call him the Witch King of Angmar, that yeah, was his Angmar's kingdom in the, in the north, north, right? Yeah. Anybody who's ever played uh, the Battle for Middle Earth two on their PC knows this. Or Lord of, or Lord of the Rings Risk. <laughs> or Lord of the Rings Risk, yes. So um he he's using this sword of the foes of Angmar, and so it's got these kind of like spells and runes written into it, enabling it to get past the defenses of this witch king of Angmar and the spells that he's, you know, wreathed himself in. I thought he was just going to look at him and scream Expelliarmus. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that that gets him through to to stab him in the leg. Um, but my guess is he would have just been a Nazgul with a limp after that. And it's, it's Eowyn who actually stabs him in the face. Well, then why does her blade go into the face? Like, it's a good place to kill somebody. Well, (laughs) point the end goes in the other man. Exactly. Uh, Well, that's, that's my thing is. So why does she succeed where somebody else would have failed? You know, yeah. What's so special I mean, her blade wasn't, you know, from the magical, you know, gift shop against Angmar of, so, so my guess is that there's nothing <laughs> special, <laughs> there's nothing technically special about her or her sword that allows her to do this. It's, um, it's that nobody else has even gotten this close. The terror that he invokes means that nobody has even been able to stand up to him up to this point. Yeah. And, and, and so somebody else probably would have been able to stab him in the face. Yeah. Well, and I never thought about that. Tolkien never explicitly says this is actually impossible. Right. Um, and um, it's just a prophecy yeah and Tolkien does something kind of along the theme of things that aren't explicitly stated where you kind of see the hand of the Valar working in favor of good he doesn't explain a lot of all of the the power in magic 
I mean, uh, that, that goes on in Lord of the Rings. I mean, like, I mean, the power of love and the power of, like, he, I mean, oaths and covenants are important to him as well. Um, a contrast would be J.K. Rowling really finally does explain exactly why Harry Potter's mother was able to protect. Right, the, the like, mechanism of the spell. Yeah, yeah the mechanism of the protection. Uh, and, and, and he does not explain, as far as I know, a lot of why this happens. Well, that was that's the thing is I really wish I could have found this paragraph again, and I vague I think it's when do you want, I've got it right here. Well, it's not the paragraph where he stabs. Oh, okay. It's later on when they're describing this. And maybe it's even out of this section. Um, I think he's talking with Gandalf and maybe to Frodo and Sam or whatever about what happened. And Gandalf makes some comment about how because of the blade that um, uh, because of the blade that he had, you know. He was able to inflict it. You know, like you were talking about, it was a special blade or whatever right. it was that. So my thought process, the way that I, you know, made it work in my head was, hey, Mary stabbed him in the leg with a special blade that made him, made it, made it like it broke the protections yeah. that he had or whatever that let Eowyn stab him in the face. Yeah. You know, that's the way I worked it out. But I don't know if that's necessarily the truth or not. So. Yeah. So I, I, now let's say it was Mary that killed him. I, you know, it could be that either Mary killed him or he let the Witch King's defenses down enough that Eowyn was able to, right? Stabbed him in the either way. vein in the leg. <laughs> in the prophecy, if I'm not mistaken, and I'd have to go back and read it again, but man, no living man will, like, at the hand of no man or whatever. It's lowercase. Right. Now, this is important in Tolkien because men are a race unto themselves, not the gender, not the sex, right? Uh. It's... So when he uses a lowercase there, it's no male. No male. Or, uh, you know, so I wonder if it does have to be. So Rosie... I just talked myself out of my own point. No, Rosie... No, so theoretically, if Rosie Cotton... Had Rosie Cotton, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I really just talked in a circle and, and really talked myself out of my own point. Um, anyway, uh, Ryan, you got any more? Uh, I do have a couple other points um, that I was going to talk about. There's one that I think we do need to hit on. Um and I can let the other ones go. Uh, let's talk about Aragorn for a moment as the healer king. Ooh, you mean Jesus? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's I'm going to provide it. That's one of the things. Anytime you have a story where you have a return of an authority figure, uh, someone who's coming back to take their throne, who's doing something like that, there always has to be something that they do or something that they can show that it makes that them proves it. You know, I am who I say I am because there's usually a false few before them. And so one of the things is, that they say is that the king... The uh, hands of the king the are the king, hands of a healer or other way around. Something like that. Yeah. He Basically, break. his hands are magic. He has By his magic fruits, fingers. you shall know him. And I think... I, I just thought the whole sequence of him going through and being like, okay, I'm the king, and now that I've won this battle and we've, we've still got more to do in the future here, mm-hmm. um, I've got to go around... And my first priority now is to go through and take care of those who have been injured fighting this battle and heal them with my magical fingers. Well, and and I don't, I mean, and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I don't know that before, so when they go through the road of death and he, and he, and he ta- greets the army of Oathbreakers, I don't remember who they're called, what their name is. Um, Good enough for me? Yeah, he, he gets his army of ghosts. Um, on the authority of the line of Elendil. I am the heir. You, I'm the only one to whom you can keep your oath um, to, to fight for me. 
um, because I'm the heir of Isildur. Um, after that, from this point on, and like I said, I don't know if he was acting this way before, but from this point on, he has authority. So he's not just healing people. He's looking them in the eyes and saying, I am, I'm essentially casting out the darkness. I'm commanding you to awake, to awake and yeah. come out of this. Um, Aragorn, I don't know if he has a new sense of who he is, but he's certainly taking on more of his role. Yeah. It's kind of, um, it reminds me of, uh, <laughs> um, as the ring gets closer to its source and its master, it grows in power. Right. And it, you know, it works on Frodo differently and more powerfully. Uh, similarly, as Aragorn gets closer to the day of, of his reckoning, right? He, becomes, he more becomes more and more who he's meant to be, right? That is interesting. Uh, Ryan, you raise your fist in triumph. I'm sorry. I found an answer on the internet to <laughs> our previous discussion, and I was right. It's good stuff okay. on Wikipedia. Wait, what was that? It says, uh, here. here's the response. It says uh, This only happens every once in a while, so Ryan's got to check. I, I have to run. I have to run when I get these. <laughs> says, as he towered over here preparing to deliver the final blow, Merry snuck up behind him and plunged his sword into the back of the witch king's knee. The sword, made in the westerness, centuries ago, broke the magic of Sauron that kept the witch king anchored it to this world. While the witch king was distracted, Eowyn drove her sword where the head of the wraith would have been slaying him. Okay. So this, by stabbing him, it broke Sauron's, his, Sauron's his spell, spell yeah. that kept him in limbo. He then became mortal, came here, stab in the face. I was right! So Mary didn't kill him, but he facilitated the death. Exactly. Mary is the Ewoks on Endor. (laughs) (laughs) Brings down the shield, the shield generator, and and Eowyn is uh, Admiral Akbar. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this really took a turn to something awesome. (laughs) Oh my goodness gracious. Sorry, I had to to gloat with my moment of of being right. No, that's perfect. I'm glad you did uh, before we uh, finished up. We're running close to an hour here. Um, Do you guys have anything else? Any other questions you want to bring up? Because now is the time. Um, All of my questions might take a moment um yeah give me yeah throw one at me okay well i have one point about aragorn real quick he it wasn't just healing people and this is something i only noticed this last time that i read it in the last couple days um it was it seemed to have the sense that he would heal the land as well that he would bring healing to the country and y'all can correct me on that um we can look at it later um no, no, no. I, you know, I did think it was interesting, speaking of that, that when they are marching toward the Black Gate and they pass Minas Morgul, they uh, they burn the fields behind them as they go. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, some maybe something about purging evil from the land. Hmm. But they, yeah, they burn the fields as they, as they start northward toward the Black Gate. Wow. Yeah. So maybe there's something to that. So... My last question, okay. and you won't be able to answer it because this this will be included in your um, mini series from Professor Hanks. Um, <laughs> so, just kind of geopolitics of Middle Earth is Gondor really in decline? Why are they in decline? Or yeah, oh, that's questions. a good question, man. Like fifty-seven, fifty-eight minutes in. <laughs> um, here we go, folks. Another round of Professor Hanks no, in the history. So, no, well, I, mean, I, I think I, this I asked, isn't. This yeah, it's a weak question. It's not. I mean, I want to know one: Are they really in decline? Like, I mean, they're still pretty powerful. And if they are in decline, why? Right. And, there's. Yeah. Go before ahead. you jump in and give us the full version, I want to. I want to give you my thoughts on that. Um, 
the first is we're coming into the age of men, right? Right. The elves are in decline. Everyone else is leaving. So in the sense that they are in decline, maybe a little bit, um, in the sense that they're maybe not the powerful Numenorean race, yeah, whatever a, that they once were. A skill is missing a few janitors. Like it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, and they've got a lot of rebuilding things like that to do. But in the sense that this is the, we're now entering the time when it is men's time to rule middle earth and to be the, the driving, the driving force. force there. They are still probably the top and most powerful kingdom there. Um, especially with all the allies. And now that the King that rules over all of the, all of the North and the South, you know, now the Aragorn's there. Um, you know, I don't know that necessarily they'll be in decline for much longer because now yeah. everyone's going to be taken right. care of. You know, I, I think of it um, like you would think of any real life uh, um, empire. So you think of the Roman empire, you can think of the American empire of the last, uh, you know, hundred years or so, 50 years, whatever. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but, uh, Yes, these empires do decline. Um, And so it it may be in decline, and Rome was in decline, but... It's relative Yeah, exactly. You sure wouldn't want to go poke them, because they may be in decline, but uh, they'll sit on you. Right. Um, And so I think, uh, you know, some people say the U.S. is in decline, its empire is crumbling around it. Uh, But you can imagine uh, if if this sort of thing existed in this world, but maybe the intellectual heir to the founding fathers or some group shows up, some new political party that really revitalizes things and recharges this empire. All the pieces are in place for it to be powerful. Right. And so that's, you know, that's what Aragorn is doing. Yeah, they're in decline, but that doesn't mean that they're not powerful. And it doesn't mean that, uh, that they can't regain some part of their former glory. Right. Great. Thank you. Yay. Um, Ryan, are you, uh, you're staring intently at that iPad. Do you have anything else you want to bring up? No, I'm learning more about, uh, apparently, I guess Frodo and Sam saw the Witch King spirit go back to Mordor after. Uh, dude, sorry, stop this, ruining it. This is really cool to me now. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get there. We'll get there. Um, I guess my, my parting shot as we finish up will just be, you know, we've talked a lot about, and, and we really should have gotten more into this, about Aragorn as a figure of Christ. Oh, yeah. um, and you know, maybe we can talk about this more when we, when we talk about Frodo in the same role as as savior. But if you are reading the Lord of the Rings, if you know if you're listening to this podcast and you're reading the Lord of the Rings and you are not a Christian, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You can still get so many things out of this story. But in order to fully understand where Tolkien was coming from, you've got to understand. Christian and especially Catholic theology to, you know, to kind of get the points that he was uh, trying to give you. So if, you know, if there are any budding Tolkien scholars out there, what I would say is, yes, you've got to read these books and read them carefully. Yes, you go read some of the scholarly works by Tom Shippey. Yes, you go read the History of Middle-Earth edited by Christopher Tolkien. But for heaven's sake, you've got to go read about Christian theology as well or you're not going to get the the full story. So, that's my parting shot. You guys have anything else to say? May the force be with you. Uh, Whatever. Yep, yep.
Hey guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to The Legendarium on iTunes. Uh, check us out at thelegendarium.podbean.com and also write us at thelegendariumpodcast at gmail.com.